This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but rarely do successful people get from point A to point B taking the most direct route. Host Jeffrey Klein speaks to a diverse mix of people to explore their story of success and the dots connected along the way. Thank you for listening. Here's your host, Jeffrey. Wow, another great episode talking with my mother-in-law. And while some people make jokes and say they don't like their mother-in-laws, I got really lucky because I have the best mother-in-law there is. She's super creative, but also has this amazing ability to connect with people because of her gratitude for things in her life, her commitment to volunteering. And I've, as I say in the episode, I've been benefited from her amazing seamstress uh, and how everyone should learn to use a sewing machine. Enjoy this awesome episode. Thanks. My guest today is Ruth Goodman, a British artist and seamstress who has spent much of her time supporting worthy charities. Mrs. Goodman started sewing when she was only 12 years old, making her own clothes as a teenager, and then later making clothes for her own children. Mrs. Goodman studied fashion design and clothing technology at Holland's College in Fallowfield before working in interior design, making Sally homeware accessories. She's also served as a wardrobe for amateur theater productions, as well as made special swimwear for women who've had undergone mastectomies. Mrs. Goodman has been an active volunteer for the League of Jewish Women, as well as a supporter of many other charities, including Heathlands, the Nikki Alliance, and the Halle Orchestra. Her volunteer work has led her to meet several members of the royal family. Later in life, she picked back up her interest in art, studying the Reignite program of Berry Council, and then joining the Whitefield Painting Club. She continues to create in pencil, charcoal, oils, and pastels, as she has done portraits and photographs of celebrities such as Amy Winehouse and Michael Jackson to live portraits of the mayor of Berry. She is a proud wife, sister, mother, and grandmother, and to me, she's the world's best mother-in-law. Please welcome Ruth Goodman. Hi, everybody. Hi. So I like to start at the beginning. Where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? Well, I was born in the market town of Bury, Lancashire, in 1954. And interestingly, the founder of the Metropolitan Police Service of the UK, and he was also former prime minister of the UK, Sir Robert Peel, was also born in Bury in 1788. So I'm in good company. Uh, my father was a market trader. He joined the army in, when he was 19. And he actually was a paratrooper landing in the D-Day landings. Um, and he met my mother in around 1947, 48. She was very, very bright at school, but she had to leave, as a lot of women did in those days, at 18 to get a job. Money was tight. And she trained as a shorthand uh, typist, which saw her through quite a, year, a number of years uh, as a secretary. Um, she could have gone on further, but unfortunately she didn't. But, um, you know, we had a happy uh, upbringing after the war and uh, I learned quite a lot from both my parents. So as a kid coming up after the war, did you have different perspectives of kind of what you want to be when you grew up? Well, you have to remember that at that time, we were, uh, you know, my parents' generation were rebuilding the country and there wasn't a lot of everything around. We just about had a car. We just about had a television. 
life was very simple and you know it was great it was it was really fine we had a really happy childhood um my two brothers were encouraged to um go further in their education which they both did and uh i sort of um had no particular ambition um i was a i was a normal teenager um However, of course, at that time in the 70s, we had Mary Quant and Twiggy and everybody was talking about fashion. And I, I actually had a, uh, that was my interest. I developed my interest in fashion at that point. And uh, I think that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I guess I could have done more, but I went to a very good college and I learned a lot. I worked for good companies um, and I met my husband very young. So that was my, that was my future, my ambition. But I've always, always sewn. Uh, had an interest in sewing and uh, I just developed it as I got older. And growing up, um, it, having a sewing machine at a very young age, did, but also seeing kind of these fashion, you know, icons at the time, was there anyone you looked up to who's kind of like a role model while you were growing up? Um, well, I had a great aunt who was a spinster, uh, who was a wonderful, wonderful dressmaker. Uh, I, I don't know about role model. I did used to sit by her knee and watch her sewing and I guess that's what got me on the road. Um, uh, I just sort of taught myself and, and um, was just interested in fabric and shape. And uh, it, a lot of it was sort of trial and error. Um, but I've always, you know, tried to be a little bit of a step ahead in fashion. And uh, that was, that was, that was, and I was tall and skinny like Twiggy. So, you know, I was sort of halfway there. But I used to chop things up and I used to, like they do now, you know, I used to, uh, uh, redesign and and use use things that I, that I had in store, and it was fun. It was good fun. Uh, it was, so it was you, a time. It was a fun time. Sixties and seventies. You're making your own clothes as a teenager. Did your friends say, "Oh my God"? You know, did they know that you had made your own clothes? Did any of them uh, ask you to make their clothes? Sometimes I told them, and sometimes I didn't. It depended how that how things turned out. I did make a pair of, um, you know, what corduroy is. It's like velvet. I yep. made a pair black corduroy trousers but I had one leg going up one leg going down so if you know what that means they didn't look the same one was dark and one was light and that was a bit of a faux pas I didn't do that again that was that was a mistake I did not do again but uh yeah sometimes and I used to alter things for people you know and shorten things and you know it, it, everybody knew I had a sewing machine so if anybody needed anything they were they were at the door <laughs> uh, I, I've been a beneficiary of that myself you have indeed um and you know, I, I just while we're talking about sewing, uh, I think it's really important that uh, young generations, uh, not even young generations, everybody should learn how to sew, especially nowadays. And uh, as you know, I've taught my girls and uh, mm -hmm. I've even taught your son how to use a sewing machine. And I think it's really important that people learn how things are made, how to save things, how to alter things. You know, we live in a throwaway society, it's terrible. And maybe we're post COVID, maybe people are going to start thinking about that again now, I hope so. You know, yeah, I, I think it's a wonderful skill to have one that I don't. Uh, I'm very fortunate that my wife yeah. uh, does. And then I'm hoping, you know, my son will carry on that tradition. Well, you know what they say? They say that the men make the best tailors better than women. So, you know, there's no there's no stigma anymore. You know, best fashion, fashion designers are probably men. Well, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, they're pretty good. Uh, so I'm obviously obsessed with story. I'm curious uh, who was a great storyteller when you were growing up and what do you think made them such a good one? Yeah, well, my father, Harold, who you never, unfortunately, you never got to meet, was a great storyteller. Uh, he had a lot of stories. He had stories from the army. 
his first days in business. He met some very interesting people along the way. He was also involved with charities. Um, he was a market trader. And if you know anything about market traders, they have their own stage. That's what they do. They stand, well, in the old days, I mean, it's not so much these days, but they used to pitch. They used to sum up their, 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 their audience and, and find out who was likely to buy and they'd have their own way of selling. And he was hilarious. He was hilariously funny. He was one of the old school. And uh, he had all these amazing stories and, and, and turns of phrase and, you know, our, my family, we all laugh about it. And we do, we do re-quote re him. Um, and I think he might have made a very good actor uh, in spite of his limited education. Uh, but he was he was good in the centre of attention and he uh, was a very good auctioneer. So, again, you have to have a certain skill to become an auctioneer. Um, and he also had a great sense of humour. You know, and he was also people he, he was uh, drawn. People were drawn to him. So I think his storytelling uh, was certainly an example in the old days then. Um, my mother was also good at telling stories, if you remember, Jeffrey. Um, she always had something to say. And she'd recall, she'd recall things that had happened to her and some very funny stories that, you know, excuse me, experiences. So, yeah, I think maybe I come from a from a background storytelling. And getting back to kind of, you you know, doing fashion, what was your first paying job? Was it in, in making clothing or? Uh, well, when I when I uh, took a summer job, um, when I was about 16, I did it for about two or three years on the row. We had a store in, in Manchester called Kendall Mills, which uh, was very famous, very famous, a bit like Saks Fifth Avenue, but it was a one, it was a one store, it wasn't a chain. And they had fashion concessions and it was very, very popular in those days. So it was very, it was buzzing and I used to work through the summer uh, and I, that was my first paid job. So I, again, I was selling clothes, you know, to all sorts of women, it was, it was ladies fashion. So yeah, it was a good experience. And you also are become quite the artist. And, and when did you first learn to either paint or draw or when, when did that? Other well, skill... uh, when I was at school, everybody had to do art uh, in those days. I'm sure it's, I don't know whether they're still doing it these days, but you know, we, we had to do art. It was part of the syllabus. And some people were interested, some people weren't. And um, I don't think I was particularly inspired by our teachers. Uh, I did A-level, I, I went on to do A-level art. Again, I wasn't particularly inspired. I passed it, but I didn't do any particularly great work. And uh, as the years went by, I started going to galleries, looking at different artists, and I just suddenly got the urge to uh, take up a paintbrush. Uh, so yeah. about 15 years ago, I, I started with local um, adult education classes, and uh, it was great. And I met other people my age. We were all rediscovering it. Uh, started oil painting, which I've never done, which I love. And I found I could do portraits, which also I, I, I get a lot out of. And we have, say, um, well, we don't have it, it's Sky Arts, Portrait Artist of the Year, which is amazing. So that's something I follow. Um, so yeah, I'm glad I did it. I'm really glad I did it. So between kind of the fashion and the art, and, and I know you're a big traveler, uh, what's kind of the most surprising place you've ever found yourself, whether it's a location or engaging with a particular person? Where are you like thinking about, wow, I can't believe I was there or met this person or spoke to that person? Uh, well, OK, I um, <clears throat> excuse me. I was uh, involved with um, a fundraiser for the Halle Orchestra and uh, I sold some tickets for them. And um, for some unknown reason, I'm not quite sure why I was asked if I would like to be presented to Princess Margaret, the Queen's sister. She was our guest of honor. 
I said, of course, I would be absolutely delighted. Thank you. Um, so uh, the organiser phoned me to tell me um, we'd be meeting in a special room at the Midland Hotel. The, there were a few of us. It wasn't just me. It was quite a few of us. And um, I said, you know, I, I have my mother with me today. And I also have um, a relative from the United States. This was my sister-in-law's mother who ha just happened to be in town that day. She'd come to visit. And I said, could I possibly uh, bring them with me? And this organiser said, well, I'm not sure, you know, it's only really you. Anyway, he came back to me and he said, they've, they've said, yes, it's OK. So they stood behind me and I was presented to Princess Margaret, who was really quite small and quite tall. Uh, she, we had a little chat. And this was at the, Halle, uh, sorry, at the Midland Hotel, which is one of the first places I took you, if you remember correctly. Where Mr. Gold met the voice. And um, it was quite something. I think my mother and... Uh, our relative was were agog. <laughs> uh, it was really quite amazing, and uh, it was a lovely surprise. It was it was quite an honour. And then uh, she, of course, went down to the main room and and uh, gave her speech. So that was that was something quite quite uh, superb. We're going to get back to the royal family in a second, but before I do that, you spoke about your dad and and your mum being really good storytellers. Do you think that being good at telling stories is something that you're just born with? Or is it a skill that you can kind of develop over time? Um, well, uh, not everybody is good at telling a story. Uh, maybe you can, with everything that's available today, you can probably do courses and learn how to do it in, you know, better. Uh, I think it's a skill that comes from confidence and uh, learning to, uh, as you do, you know, sort of vet your audience beforehand or during and, and, and sort of change the way you tell the story according to the people that are listening to you. Um, I, I, um, yeah, I think you can learn it, uh, but you have to really want to do it. And the more you do it, I'm sure the better you get. And the more you get, you get feedback, you can then act on that. So yeah, I think you, I think you can learn it. Uh, and I think some of it may be inherited. Um, yeah. But Combination it's a great, nurture nature, I guess. Uh, well, yes, exactly. But it is a great way to, to talk to people and, and sort of hold their attention. But yeah, of course, you have to think about what you're saying as well, of course. But uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm a big proponent that stories are the best way to capture people's attention. Uh, and also, you, you commented on, you know, for me, the audience is the most important thing to think about whenever you're speaking, you know, and telling exactly. stories. Uh, I actually, through my charity work, I actually went on radio once with two other ladies from uh, my organization. They were so nervous. I mean, they were, they'd written all these notes and they were really even shaking. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've written nothing. I wrote a few sketchy notes down. And I had to talk very fast. I do tend to talk fast. I had to talk fast because I had a lot to say. It was about what I do for the league. Um, and it really, it was, it was great. I actually really enjoyed it. And uh, I wish I'd done more really. But yeah, you know, I wasn't telling a story as such, but I tried to make it sound like it was mm -hmm. a story, even though it was actually facts and figures. So that's something yeah. else. You sort of yeah, stretch it in. Stretch it and uh, mold it and maybe make it more interesting if you can. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned about meeting Princess Margaret, and I know you've met a couple other members of the royal family. Uh, why are they still important and relevant in England? I mean, there are certain people who I think still believe in, in, in their stature and importance and then others who don't. What's your take on that? Oh, well, um... My father-in-law was a great royalist. He absolutely loved anything to do with the royal family. And of course, if he'd have been alive now, the crown, he would have been going mad for the crown. Um, <clears throat> I, um, 
I think it's important. I think the royal family is very important. I think they, um, she's a marvellous figurehead. She's a prime example of duty, <clears throat> excuse me, hard work, stability. I'm very sorry that she has a dysfunctional family. I don't know how she copes with that and all the scandals that have surrounded them over the years. But um, I think most people admire and respect her. And I think we're lucky to have her, really. And I think William will be a wonderful king. I really like William. Uh, I think he's going to, he's uh, the future of the monarchy will be in safe hands with him. Uh, he's picked up on the modern life. He's picked up on what people want to hear and do. He's, he's made some wonderful programmes. And uh, I, I think they should, I, I think it'll take a different form as the years go by. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I think there's been too much uh, written about Charles and Diana and all that's going on with the crown. I don't know that that's necessary. In a way, you know, maybe Charles should have gone with Camilla first time round, but then we wouldn't have William, would we? So there you go. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, I did go to Buckingham Palace to the uh, Royal Garden Party, also to do much voluntary work. And um, there were a lot of people there. There were a couple of thousand people there. A lot of people support the Queen. You know, people were outside the palace. It was a great day. I think they had three, they had one every year, not, not this year, obviously, but um, three days on the run. You know, it's a huge thing. So, uh, yeah, I think the support is still there for the monarchy. And I think uh, we'll see what happens when Charles steps in and eventually William. So, yeah, I think it's important. And I hope, I hope they keep going, but they'll have to change. They've already started changing. Uh, speaking, you know, you talked about the Queen and her duty, and you know, <clears throat> I see from all the ro the royals, you know, that a big part of their role is in giving back and volunteering, and I and you've done a lot of that in your life. Why do you think that's so important to be able to volunteer and to give back? Well, um, you you know, they say volunteering is very good for you. It's very good for your psyche. It's very good for your hormones. It really makes you feel good about yourself. And you're not really doing it for yourself. You're doing it for other people. Um, and I've met some really amazing people, um, you know, in hospitals, in care homes, uh, with disabled, with all sorts of people who are just wonderful. They do these jobs that not everybody wants to do. They don't get paid a great deal of money for doing it. And they are fun. They are interesting. They lead, they inspire, they open your eyes. And, uh, you know, without doing voluntary work, I would never have come across these people. And the other thing is, of course, um, I've become more confident in public speaking, which I've done a few times due to my charity work. So there's a skill. I suppose it's like telling your own stories, yeah, to groups of strangers. Um, but um, it's very important to give back. And I hope that young people will demonstrate altruism as well. You know, it isn't uncool, it's cool. It's cool to be a volunteer. And uh, people sometimes volunteer and then they get offered paid work through through volunteering. There's so many facets to it, really. A um, bit late for me now, but certainly I think everybody should do some volunteer work at some time in their life because it really is so important. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I've done it and I'll keep on doing it as long as I can. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's something that we're trying to instill in your grandchildren, and, and they've all yeah. uh, done done voluntary work and will continue to do so. And, and, and the nice part now yeah. is that I think they're seeing the, the model of, you know, their, their family, and they're thinking about it independently, which is, I think, the goal, that not just to be told you need to do volunteer work, but to actually want to. And I think they're, you know, they're seeing that now, and it's... Well, it's very encouraging uh, from my perspective. Good. Well, I've, I've been a member of the League of Jewish Women for 25 years. It's, it's welfare. It's not fundraising. It's welfare organisation. 
And we support the Jewish and the wider community. So it's not just uh, Jewish organizations, it's non-Jewish mm -hmm. organizations. We've just had uh, only last week, a coffee morning on Zoom, because obviously we couldn't have it mm -hmm. live, for the Council of Christians and Jews. And we have got some fun, every year the same group of people come, they wanna be with us. Uh, we have the mayors of all the different boroughs. We have uh, priests, we have a sister from a Catholic uh, um, group. We have just incredible and they just we just love being together and we only come together once a year and it's so important and this is can only do society good so there's so many different ways that volunteering can can change things and as long as we remember that and keep going we have to keep going uh carry on and, and keep yeah going. oh yeah, yeah, yeah um um i'm going to switch back to to kind of painting and be a little less altruistic in my question um, but if you could paint a live model, because I know you like painting people live, of any person alive or deceased, who would you want to paint and why? Well, um, do you, well, you know who Iris Apfel is, don't you? She's American, obviously. She is almost, I think she's uh, almost 100. She is amazing. She's, um, she started, she's my kind of woman. She started off as a textile designer. She traveled the world. She's become a world-renowned collector of fashion, uh, clothing and jewelry, particularly vintage. And she's so colorful. She's, everything she wears is amazing in color and shape. She's got vintage, she's got new, she's amazing. And uh, very eccentric. Um, and I think she would certainly be full of stories. So I would love to paint Iris Apfel. I don't think I'll ever get the chance, but I could do it from a photo, I guess. Um, and I hope I look like her at 100. <laughs> 100. Um, but anyway, that's who I'd like to paint. What, uh, I'd like to ask you a question that I think some people find difficult, but I think it's an important one to, to kind of, especially as you're speaking to younger people, how would you define success? Well, um, <clears throat> I think that success is having what you need to make you happy and healthy. And having a good name, I think a good name is really, really important. And that's the one thing you can leave behind, apart from your family. So well, I you've think, got a good name. Well, success is having a good name and also just what you need to make you happy and healthy. And, um, you know, as you get older in life, there are different things that bring success. And you just have to remember to hone in on the things that, you know, make you happy and healthy and bring you success all at the same time. Not always so easy, but um, that's, the, that's the way I see it. And uh, my late father once said, it can be seen that I have passed this way. So I think mm -hmm. that is success. Having a legacy. Yeah. <laughs> and what inspires you? Um, okay. Um, I think kindness. When people are kind to each other and, and um, talent, talented, talent of any sort, uh, be it sport, be it, um, you know, culture, whatever. Uh, I love visual beauty. I like color. I love color. And I love the natural world. Um, and change, change for the better. Maybe that's too I'll share it. One of my guests, uh, Ann Geddes, who's a photographer, it's interesting, something you said there reminded me that she made a comment that Mother Nature never gets the, the color wrong. No, it's, all, that was it's true. It's true. No, but th that's that's the sort of thing that would inspire me. 
Now, having done all the different experiences that you've had throughout your life, what one piece of advice would you give to your 21-year-old self? Oh, God. Uh, well, at 21, I was already married. So I'm not going to say get married or don't get married because my marriage has lasted 47 years. So, you know, it's young to get married. But uh, at 21, I wish I would have said to myself, you must go to university. You must. And I didn't. I did a lesser qualification and had the ability to go to university, but I didn't. Uh, so I went to the University of Life instead. Um, I don't really have any regrets. The only thing was I made sure my daughters did. My daughters went to university. And I think I missed out on an experience of leaving home and, and doing that because when I was uh, studying, I was married most of that, those years. I got married after my, uh, at the beginning of my second year of study. So, you know, that's, that's what I would have said. Get, leave home and go to university. But it didn't work out like that. But that's, that's what I would have said to myself. So you, you've been someone who's embraced, in my opinion, technology and, and you kind of keep your eye on what's going on and, and, and definitely in terms of the art scene. Yeah. What do you think is the next trend coming in in the arts? Oh, God. I, I, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm a traditionalist. I do love the great masters. Um, we have a program on, on at the moment. I don't know if it's on Sky. I'm not sure. Called Rebel Arts. I'm not sure if I'm going to watch it. It looks interesting but I'd rather watch Portrait Artist of the Year. I do love Banksy. I do love Tracy Emin. Uh, I also love David Hockney. Uh, the thing I like about David Hockney is that he does experiment with different techniques. He's always done that. And even in his eighties, he's now using iPads and all these new technologies. Um, so who knows? I think you do what you want. I think in art, you, you, you do what you want, what you feel is in you and you want to paint. Um, so I'm afraid I don't know how to answer that one. Um, well, let me ask you specifically, because you mentioned both uh, David Hockney and, and others that, that now use an iPad yeah. as their canvas. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Uh, I haven't tried it, but I think my grandson, Avi, has. He's got one of these pens and uh, mm -hmm. he, did a, he did a self portrait, which is really, really good. In fact, he came with me uh, when we did when we had the mayor of Berry last year. He was actually off school that day and I said, get your paints together. You're coming with me. And he came and he did a portrait of the of the mayor, but he did it with oils, uh, sorry, acrylics. Um, so yeah, you know, I think the kids today will be given a wider option of techniques and they'll probably study more modern artists, I'm not sure. Um, but you know what? In its day, even all paints were new, you know what I mean? They were a new form of technology, you know, and the colors and the new the new dyes, the new, the new colors. So it, maybe it's just going to keep on evolving. Um, I think I think when the restrictions of coronavirus are over, I will get back to part, uh, portraits with my art clubs, and maybe at the moment I could do some landscapes. I've got no excuse really; I could still get out, I suppose. But um, you know, I have thought about uh, art therapy. Maybe at some point I might do a course in that. We'll see. Well, you've gone and answered my next question of what was next oh. for you. So well, let's move. Is there anything else you want to add to that? Um, well, I, you know. Um, if I have the time and I, and I feel I could be of use in that sphere, maybe that's something I would do. Uh, but of course, everything is on hold at the moment. So this is the time I'm supposed to look into it. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. So now we're at that portion where I ask you nine rapid fire questions, which aren't always as rapid fire as uh, they can be. But here we go. Is it better to be a planner or a doer? <laughs> well, I think you need to be both. 
you need to plan and then act fast. So you don't forget your plan or get your plan written down somewhere. But I think you, you need to do both to get a good result. Should stories always have happy endings? Well, life isn't like that, is it? Life just is not like that. But realistic, you've got to be realistic, but you've got to be optimistic as well. It's good to be optimistic. So go for it. Go for the optimism. If you had to sing a karaoke song, and sometimes I'll just ask this as, what's your favorite song? Because some people don't like karaoke, but what song do you think you'd want to sing or what's a song you'd love to hear and sing to? Well, uh, I don't do much karaoke, to be honest, but uh, we did make a video many years ago of Twist and Shout, which was brilliant. So I'd say Twist and Shout. Do you have a favorite painting? I know, let me ask it this way. What's one of your favorite paintings? Because to make you pick just one might be difficult. Oh, I know it is difficult. And I did think about this a little bit. And um, I like by David Hockney, Mr. and Mrs. Clark and Percy, because it's set in the 1970s. It's very nostalgic for me. And it's a really lovely painting. It's a big painting. Forget now where it's hanging. But, um, you know, it's a David Hockney. I like David Hockney. And he's still going, which is brilliant. And so can you name one of your favorite artists other than David Hockney? As clearly he's one of them. Oh, well, God, you know, Rembrandt's amazing. Van Gogh's amazing. You can learn so much from Cezanne, Monet. You can learn so much from these, from just studying the paintings. They're all fantastic, you know, but all in the different ways. Can you name a book that left a lasting impression on you? Uh, yes, I can. And I've recommended it to quite a few people and I haven't met anybody who hasn't enjoyed it. Where the Crawdads Sings, uh, sorry, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. It's a really lovely book. Um, it grips you. It's, 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 um, it's sweet. It's got a, it, I, can't, I can't explain. It's a really great book to read. It's immersive and um, it has a really good ending, which is good. And she is actually an artist in it at the end. So that did it all for me. But it's a great book. Can you name one of your favorite movies? Well, again, you know, there's so many. But I have to sort of just, on a nostalgic note, the original Mary Poppins, mm -hmm. my great aunt took me to see when I was 12. And I thought it was absolutely unbelievable. And of course, it was one of the first films that had any cartoon in it mixed with reality. And it was a really very technical in its day. So well, interestingly, I just we just watched um, Jingle Jangle, uh, which was produced by my other guest, Mike Jackson, and it has elements, I think, in the same way. It reminds me of a couple to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang uh, and Mary Poppins. And, and it really has that whimsy of um, the fantastical in, in a wonderful celebratory way. Well, but they did a really good job with Mary Poppins. I don't think people realise how clever it was in its day. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be, you know, by today's standards, it's really probably very tame, but it was in its day. So you're It talking still holds up. The story still holds up, in my opinion. Yeah. And, uh, and I've seen it visually as well. And the music, of course. Yeah. Yeah. What's the one thing you can't live without? <laughs> well, you should know that. What can I not live without? Uh, well, are we talking about the bottom of a glass or... Uh, <laughs> Oh, um, I let you define that how, however you want. No, I definitely couldn't live without my sewing machine. And I think everybody should have a sewing machine. Uh, no, I definitely couldn't live without my sewing machine. You know, I like the, a nice vodka. And yeah. uh, obviously, I couldn't live without my husband and my family. That goes without saying. If you could be credited with inventing something, what would it be and why? 
Oh God, I say it every time. Every time I see Velcro, I said, I wish I'd invented this Velcro. It's incredible stuff. It's, uh, it's very clever. It's hooks and eyes. That's all it is. And it's, it's used in myriad uses in clothing and industry. Everywhere you go is Velcro. Amazing thing. So that's, I remember that's, when I was younger and I first had Velcro shoes instead of shoelaces. And oh, I thought it was fantastic. But I mean, every, you know, thing. everywhere, you, you know, everywhere you look, you know, uh, airplanes, uh, any, anywhere, Velcro is everywhere, but it's really, really clever. It's a clever invention. Ruth, I always enjoy speaking with you. This was oh. particularly special for me. Is there oh. anything else you want to kind of share? Uh, well, just, you know, just to go back to the voluntary thing, I, um, I just think it's better to give than to receive. And um, I think if COVID has taught us anything, it's to think about and help others less fortunate through no fault of their own. And uh, answer a cry for help when you hear it. Um, and be grateful for what you've got. And I just want to give you a quote, another quote from my father. Uh, he said, if we all put our problems on the table, you'd soon take your own back quick, which is very true. Mm. You would. Mm -hmm. And uh, pass your values down through your family. You know, that's, that's one thing you can leave behind you. Mm. Make society a better place for everybody. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound, it's, an, it's not an easy task, but that's what we can do. And definitely learn to use the same machine. Well, I am grateful for having you as my mother-in-law. Uh, as well as the grandmother to my children uh, and for being a wonderful guest and helping us connect the dots. Thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss any future episodes. If you could also do me a favor and please leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate that. Remember, story matters and is the best way to connect the dots.